Welcome to the GoTo Podcast. In this episode, Richard Soroder, Director of Product Management at Google Cloud, and Bern Rucker, co-founder of Comunda, dive into Bern's book, Practical Process Automation. They discuss best practices, anti-patterns, and how process automation can help your company. Created for developers, by developers, GoTo gathers the best minds in the software community. Stay up to date with the latest in tech through GoTo's top-rated events held online and in person in Chicago, Amsterdam, and Copenhagen, and by subscribing to the GoTo Conference's YouTube channel, where you can find thousands more high-quality dev talks. Learn more at gotopia.tech. My name is Richard Soroder. I am here interviewing Bernd here to talk about his book on practical process automation. I'm a director of product management at Google Cloud. I also do some work for InfoQ and a number of other channels to uh, spend too much time on Twitter as well. But I wanted to pause that today to at least spend some time with you, Bernd, and ask you about this uh, very interesting book. But first, please introduce yourself. Hey, Richard. Thank you very much. I'm uh, My name is Bernd Rücker. I'm one of the co-founders of Camunda. We're an open source process automation company. And that's also my background. So I'm working in the field of process automation, workflow engines for the last 15 years, contributed to a couple of open source workflow engines in the past. And like you, I probably spent too much time on Twitter and conferences and InfoQ and such. That's okay. It's a good use of time. Well, let's just jump right in here. So process automation. This can sound like something that's probably most maybe developers, programmers don't think a lot about. Maybe they don't think of it outside their code. How would you describe what process automation is really about? Why should a developer actually care about this? Yeah, that's that's one of the conceptions I have most actually out there in the field. Why should I care as a developer? It's that kind of business thingy, right? And I mean, in essence, a workflow or a process is basically a sequence of steps or a sequence of tasks. And what makes it so spe- special is typically that th- these tasks can be different things, um, especially long-running things. So I have to wait for something. That can be a human. It can be a system to respond. can be the customer to, to select something. Um, it can be an asynchronous message coming back, whatever it is. Right. And as soon as you need to wait for certain things, um, you have additional requirements because you have to save the state where you're currently at. So you can keep waiting, not only for milliseconds, but seconds, minutes, days, weeks, whatever it is. And that's a, that's actually a huge problem to solve. And this is where, where workflow engines um, strive very much. And um, while the typical use case is really in the domain of these business processes most developers think of, like whatever order fulfillment, customer onboarding, claim settlement, and so on and so forth, um, it can start very, very small, actually, if you have typical integration problems around asynchronous messaging, around function orchestration, whatever. There are a couple of these use cases as well. Um, that's why I totally believe it affects most developers on the planet, probably. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Who who in the company creates them, though? Is that the developer, the traditional programmer? Is it a business analyst? Is that someone in the cafeteria staff? Like, who's building workflows at the company? It, it depends a little bit on the use case, what I just sketched. So if you're in integration problems, it might be really the developer looking at these kind of processes. But if I look more on the, on the business side of things, it's very often... Um, yeah, business analyst or some role that translates between business and IT. It's not always called a business analyst. Um, and the the reason why that's also um, why that's possible with process automations so so well is um, because most of the tools work with visual um, modeling, 
and then you have visual models of the sequence of steps and that helps that basically facilitates collaboration like you can discuss on the model you can clarify a lot of things on the model and that also means you can talk about the model and the problems with a lot of different people actually um, and that's normally in the domain of business analysis, but it also helps. And that's my experience also with integration use case, even on a very technical level. So I saw a lot of use cases where developers discussed with developers, where um, the other person also didn't understand what they're saying about uh, uh, until you basically sketch something on the whiteboard. And then it got clear. And the, the whole idea is to take that model as kind of executable code. So you can basically model that thing graphically, but in the... At the same time, that's executable code that it can give to a workflow engine. And then you always have these, the model or the documentation is in sync with reality, which is a, which is a huge thing actually to, to achieve. Yeah, you, good. you mentioned this in the book, which everyone should pick up and read. It's a great book. But how do you Thank start you. to decide what goes in the model or what goes in the code? Right, because I mean, I've spent my year as well doing a lot of process orchestration. You accidentally start throwing a lot of loops or conditionals here in a model, and how can the developer think about well, what belongs in my function or my component or my service, yep. and what do I outsource to the workflow engine? Yeah. So the and I think that's actually an area where a lot of mistakes were made in the past, where too much things went into the model with with earlier waves, and that normally left the developers uh, like behind saying, why should I model this? I can code it much faster. It's much better mm -hmm. in code. And um, for me, um, it, it's really kind of the default is it goes into the code. That's my default. Uh, and then there are exceptions why I should put it in the model. And there, there the main reasons are either I need the persistent state. So there are uh, steps I need to wait for something. Then it goes into the model. And then I might have to decide the granularity I want to have. Like I could have one step in the model where I say, and this in the, in, in the background does whatever, three rest calls. And that means if one of these fails, I, I, I keep being in that, in that one step. If I want to ha have like the first rest call succeed, and if I want to kind of record that persistently, um, then I need to have three, um, three activities in the model as well. So whenever I need to wait, um, whenever I want it or I need to discuss that very often, that's kind of a more uh, practical thing, but I, I have that regularly that certain questions are asked all the time. Like they, somebody sees the model, it's like, how do you do that? Yeah, that's written in the code. I mean, then it's very often handy to just add it to the model because then you save a lot of time discussing it. And the third reason is typically you want to analyze on certain audit data the workflow engine writes. So you want to want to analyze like how often did we go that way? Under which circumstances do we did the decision that way or the other? And that are kind of the three reasons normally why you put stuff in the model and everything else should go to the code. And with that, it works pretty, pretty nicely. And that's something which was often not done right in the past. And um, why a lot of developers also have a wrong view about process automation. Hmm. Do you, yeah, do you think that that's tied to, you know, you and I have been around for a little while with this stuff, the old enterprise service buses and service-oriented architectures and some of these big BPMN engines at the time. Is that where that reputation kind of came from? Is just this big sort of distant thing that, you know, didn't have source control or I couldn't continuously deliver it or it's just a separate beast. Has that, do you think that reputation has kind of, impacted people's thoughts today? Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> so the, the one reason is what you just said, there was this kind of beast sitting over there 
And the over there was really kind of one of the problems. It was very often very centrally managed. It was a different mm. team. So if I'm, for example, a, a team caring about order fulfillment, I might have to, to deploy a piece of code for my order fulfillment logic, but I might also need to deploy some rules on an enterprise service bus. I might need to deploy a process on that BPM system over there. Everything right. managed by different people, different technologies. And that was pretty hard to do and pretty hard to get right, uh, almost impossible to test and these kind of things. So that didn't work out. Um, the, the second thing is connected to what, what you just asked. So um, much too much logic went into the model at these times. And that was even combined with the, with the technology stack, which was relatively complex. I mean, at that time, SOAP was kind of the order of the day and XML. Um, I'm, I, I like XML, so nothing against XML, but that whole combination was pretty complex, actually. And that led a lot of people to, it just doesn't work out. And, mm -hmm. and uh, in a mixture with, and that probably come, came on top of that, with big vendors um, ruling that field and, and, and throwing in what they called low-code um, and tools, um, basically sold by the idea of, hey, you don't need developers to automate that process. You can click it together, um, which for <laughs> weird reason doesn't work, still doesn't work. Um, that really, uh, yeah, pulled a lot of developers away from the idea of um, process automation being something for them, which, which mm -hmm. is a big pity. Yeah. Yeah. What do you, so if I am a developer today thinking about how I connect to, let's say, an existing monolith, existing commercial software, what are, what are the couple of things I might need to do to make that system workflow friendly? Like, how do I play with that other ERP system or that other even custom built thing? What, what it's the, what's kind of table stakes? What do I need? Yeah, it, it, it really depends on the, on the situation at hand. I mean, normally I, I do something I call that pain trim development sometime back. I, I'm, I'm not sure if that's unique, but um, the, if you, I mean, you not always need some kind of pain in order to, to create a project, which, which has some impact in the company. So when you see something that needs to change in the monolith, in the legacy and whatever you have, um, that might be a good opportunity to look outside workflow automation at modern tools around, um, workflow automation and say, hey, look, in, in, instead of burying that again in the monolith, let's put that into some own service. Um, let's build a proper process model. Let's integrate that with the monolith and probably other systems. Um, that sounds relatively easy. It's, it's super hard in, in reality because that normally needs that you had have to cut a lot of things under the hood of the monolith. You have to provide a couple of facades um, for the process um, to call and so on and so forth. Um, but I think that's a good way of, of going about that. And then you slightly really dis, yeah, dismantle the monolith into, into smaller pieces. Um, or you might have functionality that's relatively independent of the, of the monolith and making the monolith like one systems being used. Um, that's sometimes possible, especially in end-to-end -end scenarios that you have that whatever customer onboarding process and you might need the monolith, but you might also need the CRM system or whatever. So if I am a developer thinking about, if we start thinking about the actual development experience, what do I, you talk about some different workflow engine types and there can be an embedded engine that might even be part of my code or you know, a library I actually add to my app, be workflow as a service, which I'm interacting with remotely. How do I start to decide between things like that? And there, give me an example that a developer might recognize of an embedded sort of engine. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's kind of where we're currently coming from. So the in my reality, in my daily life, the embedded engine was kind of the default for the last 10 years 
So that works kind of, it's a library, it's a Spring Boot starter, for example, you just add. And then the workflow engine is really started up as part of your application, just needs a database to persist things. And it's very easy to use, very lightweight. Um, I still like the model for certain situations, um, especially if you build kind of a monolithic software or we have software vendors building um, their own product, but using ver a workflow engine as part of it, that makes a lot of sense. Um, we're, as an industry, we're slightly moving towards using more um, as a service components. I mean, that's not only true for um, workflow engines, but for everything and the cloud pushes towards that. I, I think you pretty much know know about that. <laughs> but um, I mean, it makes a lot of sense um, if you are more familiar with that environment. And I think people are getting more and more familiar either with public cloud or on-prem cloud, just services that it can provision easily for a certain use case. And as soon as you have that, um, it makes a lot of sense to have the workflow engine as part of a resource that you just provision if you need it. Because then you don't have to think about, okay, how do I configure the workflow engine? How does it even persist data? How how can I tune it for my workload? Um, I have persistence problems and so on and so forth. Um, right. One of the common theme in support for us in the last 10 years was really like figuring out the exact configuration of the whole Spring Boot application of the transaction manager of this and that and, and whatever connection pools in order to figure out what the problem is. And with, with a managed service, you can isolate these kind of problems. So um, I find that the, the, the better way of running it, but we're, as an industry, we're just moving towards that. So most, yeah, most development teams out there are not totally ready for that yet. But mm -hmm. I expect that to change over the last next years, actually. Now, if I am that developer, I'm thinking about, and again, we've seen this for, for a long time now, this discussion between orchestration or choreography of maybe I'm just chaining together a bunch of services through an event bus. I mean, I'm using Kafka and I'm just spinning up different things and maybe putting some metadata in a header that says this is the next thing to do, whatever it might be. What are some pros, cons? How would I decide I want to just kind of do a de decentralized model where nobody really kind of knows what's going on in the big picture, but it's very lightweight and kind of you know flexible, agile versus yeah. a more coordinated, centralized workflow engine? How do I decide that? Yeah, that's that's one of the questions I'm thinking about most, actually, because I mean that come came up a couple of years back when event-driven architectures really. I mean they're not new, but then yeah, Kafka gained traction and a lot of people started to apply these. And I had some very severe discussions around like, hey, why 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 again do I need that workflow engine? We want to be decoupled. We want to be flexible. We just do it event-driven. And I thought about that quite a long and discussed that with customers in their scenario and um, let's let's for quickly introduce both concepts because I mm -hmm. think that it's easier to follow so um, the the idea of an event-driven system of the so-called choreographed approach for for example order fulfillment would be um, there would be some component that says hey somebody ordered something that could be an order placed event put on a bus and that component doesn't know anything who um, picks it up then there might be another component like the um, the payment service, for example, saying, hey, if there was an order placed, I might have to um, collect money for that. And there might be another service, a shipment service that knows, okay, now I have to collect all the goods and put, put it in a parcel or let some person do that and ship it out and so on and so forth. And by doing that, the, 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 the overall business process emerges out of different event subscriptions. 
And the problem with that, and we saw that with a lot of customers by now, is that um, the whole process really emerges. It's hard to understand it. Um, there's a good article now from Martin Fowler. Also, he, he wrote, um, you lose sight of a larger scale flow. And I think I even remember a tweet from you saying something along the lines of control flow must go somewhere. And the problem is then really, um, you can probably observe it during runtime, but um, you have no idea to look into the code to understand how, how, how things are going. And also it's very hard to change the process behind that because now we have to look at a couple of different components, change event subscriptions, and the chain belongs together. And that's not super easy to do. Um, so whenever there's a real business process, a real flow logic behind, I find it uh, much more logical and much more easy to, to have that in one place and saying, okay, they look, this is the process. This is how it looks like. Then I can also um, have a clear owner for that because that's sometimes, that's the thing that puzzled me the most <laughs> in the beginning. Like we have Salano, for example, as uh, customer in Europe, they're uh, quite big for shipping clothes. They're doing every order fulfillment um, process over our software. And it's really weird to imagine that they let the order fulfillment emerge out of certain event notifications. Like, oh, if we're lucky, it happens. If we're lucky, it happens within the SLA. That's kind of a weird thing. They want to have somebody responsible for that. And if you have that one person and probably one team, uh, especially in a microservice, thinking then you have that team responsible and they need to coordinate things because they are um, kind of responsible for that. Are there cases where that choreography model does work for you for like certain types of processes where you do want that just daisy chaining of things or almost unrelated? Who knows what happened before? Does that ever make sense to you? Yeah, I mean, um, what I also describe in the book is that I think you need kind of a balanced approach. So there are certain use cases where events make a lot of sense. Um, the example for order fulfillment would be notifications. I, I don't want to want to think about when to send notifications exactly in each and every process. I can simply um, subscribe to certain events and send it out. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I've seen it used very successful in, let's say, startup situations um, where you have to move very fast and you build logic on top, on top, on top, um, then it might be easier to work with the events in the beginning. But that adds, from, from my perspective, it adds technical debt you have to pay back at some point in time. Um, but that can be a good decision in the beginning if you have to move fast. Um, it's normally not that good of a decision if you're kind of a big company getting your, your core processes right. Um, so there are certain use cases where event-driven makes a lot of sense. And especially if you don't have this logical flow of events, it's much um, much less risky to use events for that. Now, what thing you talked about in the book related to that was, and you mentioned earlier with having an owner and thinking about the bigger process, was actually using workflow sometimes to actually capture and improve some business metrics because now I am looking yeah. at an end-to-end -end flow. So how does that work, especially if I'm spanning different systems? How have you seen or what would be a case where I'm actually using workflow to actually bubble up maybe metrics that matter more? Yeah, that's that's still, I find it one of the most interesting fields of the current development because there is not a really out-of-the-box solution yet from, I think, any vendor. So there are a couple of different like angles where uh, we can tackle, like microservices do a lot of things from the tracing or observability point of view, but that's very often very technical to understand 
like the ping pong of microservices. Um, we have process mining, which very often more looks at how can we scrape log files from, from ERP systems, for example, to understand certain things. So not so much at really runtime behavior. We, for example, we can make a lot of sense from uh, the workflow engine data we write. And we teach the component a little bit to understand other events to, to get a perspective on the end-to-end -end monitoring. But it's also not yet where I think it should be. So there, there's still innovation happening on especially understanding like the whole end-to-end -end thing that normally spans different technologies, stacks. And um, adding the business perspective on top of that, I think that's super interesting. Yeah, it seems like a nice way to maybe break folks out of their siloed metrics. Like maybe my system's doing okay, but the whole process yeah. is broken. I yeah. don't know if you see that where sometimes you actually see different metrics bubble up because you're looking at the whole process for the first time. Uh, absolutely. I mean, we did a couple of experiments now where we basically extended the view from only what was uh, automated on the workflow engine to um, really end-to-end. -end, and that that buried a lot of surprises. Yeah. All right. A couple more questions for you. So... I'm sure there's plenty of ways to do this wrong. So what are some anti-patterns? <laughs> what are things people should be looking out for going, hey, I thought I was doing process automation right. I thought I was using a cloud workflow engine correctly. And you you would look at that and go, that is a bad idea. So what are things, some landmines that we should be avoiding now? Whether we're using, again, an embedded library, whether we're using a cloud-hosted service, your own product, what are, what are some, some traps we should watch out for? I mean, <laughs> I'm biased. You should definitely use our product. That's a good idea. Um, but <laughs> no, but I mean, the, the, the re or if you are already looking at workflow engines, I think that's the most important step in the beginning because I see bespoke, homegrown or own engines super often. And that's a lot of effort you have to put into. So don't do that. Don't build your own engine. And that normally starts with, Hey, we don't need a workflow engine. We don't have the requirements for that. So, um, and that's very often not true. So that's the, I, f I find that the most important part. And then the second part for me is language, like what workflow engine and what process modeling language do I use on top of that? And you mentioned the, um, the cloud workflow engines, the cloud products, they all have their own proprietary language. And for, for, for a couple of reasons, I'm not a super big fan of it. Um, I'm a huge fan of BPMN. That's an ISO standard. Um, that's, very much understandable. It's kind of the English um, of process modeling languages. Um, so I would look for something that supports it for various reasons. I go into much detail in the book. Mm -hmm. um, and then, I mean, that's kind of, I think, obvious, but use it for the right job, the right tool for the right job. So don't do graphical programming with the workflow engine. Don't go for low-code tools if you if you have core processes to automate and so on and so forth. Yeah, and as you mentioned, maybe not throwing too much business logic in there or... I don't know. It seems like there's plenty of ways you could over-design it or overuse it and accidentally. The interesting part is I've seen it both ways. So I've seen like workflows that were like one one task. This is where all the magic happens. That doesn't make any sense. And the other way around doesn't make any sense either. So, yeah. yeah. All right. Last thing I wanted to ask you. So, okay. So someone's listening to this going, all right, process automation doesn't sound like it's just the dusty old thing that somebody outside of IT does. This actually sounds fun. I should look at it more. How do you get started with this stuff? If you've mostly just been writing Java code, Go code, C-sharp code, and you're not used to this idea of abstracting that out to workflow, or maybe you've been doing implicit workflow, maybe you've built your yeah. own almost accidentally, how, how do you how do you get someone started there? How do you say, these are the things to start looking at, these are the things to start trying? How do you start to, and then win over the people in your workplace who might be skeptical of this model? Yeah, that's both very, very good questions. So the first, like, I mean, get 
going, that's always my advice. Try it out. Um, use, I mean, select a tool. Um, happy if you choose ours. Happy if you choose any other. Um, do kind of a POC. I mean, the first, like, play around with it. And then try to get to a proof of concept quickly in the company. Like something not too small, not too big, um, that it can really do some severe work. And then normally we use that show and tell approach. Like, um, hey, we have something awesome here. This helps us. Why? And then we talk to people. And in most of the companies where where um, our tool is adopted in a like on a prod base, um, it started with with a champion that really went around and, um, and and told everybody, hey, this is what we did. This is why it was awesome. This is where you can look at the code, try it out yourself. Um, so I'm really much in favor of these kind of approaches. Like, try it out. Rainy, rainy uh, Saturday, um, give it a go. It should. I mean, it's not that complex. I mean, mm-hmm. you should be able to get something running within hours. It's not days, it's hours. So. Is, there, is there an obvious use case for someone getting started that says, hey, look, I'm trying to do order intake. I'm trying to do something from a web flow or I'm, a, I'm building nothing but cloud functions and I want to start coordinating them. Is there something where you could say, this is low hanging fruit, go after this first? Don't show me I your would- it's the pen thing again. <laughs> how did you anticipate that no but it, i i would take whatever is familiar to you as a developer like if you if you are all day into uh whatever function then probably function uh, orchestration is the best use case for you because that's the environment you you know sure. so i would do that if you if you have no idea and want to do anything uh we very often do approval processes because i mean they're totally boring but they have all the important things. They have a human task. They have a decision point. You can add some service task in there. Um, there are get started guides you can follow. So you simply follow them. Um, no, it really it really depends. Okay. And then the last part of that, though, but if I am trying to then win over my skeptical colleagues, are there metrics around you know workflow operations that stand out? Whether it's a cost of ownership thing, is the visibility of end-to-end process? How do I go show, let's say, my boss and say, hey, this is worth the investment in time. Is there a one or two metrics or things that bubble up from a workflow that they should lean on? Yeah, I mean, there, there are a couple of things. You very often can um, can look into either t- time savings or cost savings because you really automate certain things. Um, very often, if you if you look at it from a technical perspective, it's I think for for some companies even, uh, do I understand my process and am I able to to change it later on? So it's it's more, uh, can I still survive the next years kind of thing, um, which is harder to put in numbers. Um, but I mean, sometimes it's easy. We have a couple of examples. For example, for from a bank, they they did a product in like two months and they had savings of what was it, ten million dollars uh, every year so if you're lucky you have that use case where you can calculate it super super quickly but um, most of the time you might be not uh, but it's um, I have that one picture in the book where I look at the uh, return on invest and I think it is also um, it depends on the on the invest and what we see nowadays it's not that you have to buy a huge tool suite and get months of training before you're productive but it can you can get going very quickly and that also like reduces the barrier very much yeah of course well awesome well thanks for taking some time to run through these questions folks who are listening should pick up practical process automation it's a good book i really enjoyed it well easy to read and, and i picked up a few things myself so thanks burn for taking the time and uh hope folks enjoyed the day, uh, conversation we got to have here thanks richard thanks for listening to this episode of the go-to podcast 
head over to gotopia.tech for lots more content from the brightest minds in software development.